the 12th Planning Exchange podcast. I'm Jess Noonan and I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce my beautiful friend and planning legend Nicola Smith to today's podcast. Before we get started though, just a reminder to visit our website at www.planningexchange.org for further details on our Planning Exchange champions. Nicola, can you give a quick introduction of yourself? Oh, hi Jess, hi Peter. Uh, so I am a planner of 15 years experience. I studied in WA and moved across to Victoria about five years ago. Uh, I've worked in local government and consultancy and I've worked as a development manager for Pete. And I guess that was um, spread across the two states. Hmm. Nicola, what inspired you to do planning in the, at the outset? I wasn't one of those um, kids that went through high school and decided that they were going to do geography and economics and then sort of move into planning. I was I enjoyed art and English and decided that some sort of space where I dealt with people would be good. And then uh, my mum looked in the newspaper and found there was quite a lot of planning jobs and thought that might be the go. And so I did work experience and here I am. Amazing. Hmm. And you've got extensive experience across both sides of Australia. Which of these experiences shaped you? Hmm. I was thinking about this. I guess all experiences obviously shape you, but for me, when I worked um, in Perth, I worked for a consultancy for seven years, and I guess they were the equivalent of a sort of tract here. Uh, they were called Chapel Lambert Everett, and they were a consultancy that I really, really wanted to work for when I came out of uni. And so working for them, I learned how to... Uh, work together with co-consultants, work for land developers and integrate with local and state government because at that stage I'd had a bit of government experience. Mm -hmm. So I guess that shaped me quite a bit in, in my early years and then most recently it's probably been uh, having my own business which is Niche Planning Studio um, and working as a development manager. So those three are probably the three things that have shaped me. For those who don't know, what do development managers do? <laughs> um, I thought a development manager was a coordinator of um, everyone that worked together on a project because when I worked as a consultant, that was what I saw they did. That's sort of one thing, realistically, DMs are jacks of all trade. So when I was appointed as a DM, I thought I was going to be the internal planning consultant at Pete. Um, and I got to Melbourne and, in fact, they decided that it would probably be best if I was the DM on a project that was going through PSPs. Uh, so I had to then cut across all of the different skills of a DM. So they do everything from due diligence and feasibility, which as planners we know quite a lot about, um, the actual planning, so that was fine. But then doing things like financial feasibility, so I had to build my own spreadsheets, which was crazy, um, marketing and construction management and straight through to delivery. So, mm -hmm. so working across states would be quite difficult in terms of the different legislation and policy. Have you found that quite a challenge? Um, yes and no. Like I think it's more of a mental challenge than it is when you, rather than when you actually get into it. Mm -hmm. So um, you Changing have... your mindset. To, yeah. Each, yeah, to each state. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as is always the case, you do something new and you look at it and you think, oh, my goodness, this is going to be intense. Mm -hmm. Probably you give yourself three months and then you completely understand how a new system works. Mm -hmm. So as planners, we when we go to uni, we learn to think and we learn, we learn to analyse. And those skills, for me, came into play when I came to Victoria because I was then able to understand the VPP, um, you know, 
all states across Australia have state planning policy framework, local planning mm. zones overlays. There's a lot of similarities. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. in some form of another, you yeah. end up with that similarity. So how about starting a new business in a new state? That's a, a massive undertaking. <laughs> I remember when you were starting up Niche Planning Studio and the, um, the stress that it caused. But That's it. obviously it's paid off in the long run. Yeah, it was one of those really interesting things that, um, you know, Peter was saying to me, where have you gone and, and where would you like to go? Well, for me, when I came out of uni, I almost had this little checkbox list of things that I wanted to achieve. And one was working at chapels, which I did. And... and I sort of got to this point when I was about 27 and I'd found this old newspaper article that mum had kept and, you know, I was this bright-eyed, bushy-tailed 21-year-old saying, I want to do X, Y and Z. And I'd actually achieved most of the things on the list, but the thing I hadn't done was worked interstate or had my own consultancy. So that was why I moved interstate. And then, yeah, I was working at Pete, really missed the planning side of it and thought, you know what, I want to start up my own business and give it a shot. And it's been the best thing I could have done. Mm wasn't that scary no <laughs> start maybe but yeah <laughs> I always figured I could have just fallen back and been a florist or something if it didn't work out <laughs> Why not? and some of the challenges running a small business I mm. mean it's a mid-sized business mm. and you're also a uni lecturer uh, so you've got a number of roles how, yep. do you, how do you keep it all together yep very good question um so when we first started there was just two full-timers and a couple of the boys were on contract um and that was easier to manage because when you're starting something new, as long as you know how to do your job, well, that's the starting point, that helps. So then it was just about learning how to build a business. Um, now we've got a staff of eight. So with eight, it's interesting, there's a lot of um, more administrative staff and, and financial. Actually being a DM and working with spreadsheets has helped me a lot having my own business. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this constant battle, I always joke with the guys that my job is making sure that everything runs smoothly whereas I used to be the person that you know made things happen and so you don't want to lose that so often I have to just do a bit of a reset to get back to that spot. Nicola what about the uni Uh, why do you do the uni lecturing? Ah, I do the uni lecturing because um, I feel that a lot of planners don't understand... Oh, that's maybe a bit harsh. I feel that in planning we learn a lot about the theory and, um, and loosely about the practical implementation. And you sort of, when you get out of uni, that's when you do that practical implementation. Uh, and what I'm trying to do is I'm teaching the fourth years and master's students, and the class is about implementation of PSPs. But what I'm trying to do is get yeah, them... Just for our listeners, PSP... Uh, precinct Structure Plan. And what, what do they involve? They involve um, planning for... Right now they've been for greenfield areas, um, but the new government's moving a lot closer to middle and inner ring. And so it's essentially, if you were anywhere in Australia, it's a structure plan. Um, so essentially it's teaching them how to implement a structure plan. But what I really enjoy doing is in the first three weeks we get a local government planner, we get a state government planner and we get a developer. And often the students have, have heard that sort of local government, state government perspective before, but they haven't heard the developer perspective before. Mm. And it's really interesting. Every year you find the state government planner, who in Victoria obviously implements the PSPs or prepares them. So state government planners saying structure planning's great. Local government planners saying we want to take the control back, we want to be involved. And the developer saying I don't actually mind who controls it, I just want a really good outcome. And it's interesting to teach them that sort of 
comparison, I guess. Mm. And understanding the role of the developer as being quite a crucial point in that process as well. Well, it's amazing. So there's this sort of um, perception that developers are the big bad wolf. And so um, the students come in and actually we had a, um, Andy from Mervac came and presented just this year and he spoke about how he started with we're not big bad wolves. Mm-hmm. What we are trying to do is just like anyone else, we have a job, sure, our goal is to make a profit but so is yours, you're making a salary, you're working. So our goal is actually to try and create an amazing community because if we create an amazing community, people want to buy into that estate which means we sell our lots, which means we do our job. Mm. So it's trying to get them out of the mindset that for four years they may have otherwise got themselves into. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really fun. It's really good because they challenge you a lot as well. Yeah, they would. Yeah. Um, Nicola, each project is a prototype. Can you tease this out for us? <laughs> um, so I guess thinking that through a little bit, if you've got um, each application or each site is completely different, so I guess in terms of prototype... You loosely start with the same um, process. You know, you're looking at a, a site constraints, opportunities. You're figuring out what sort of image and character you're trying to convey, and then you and then you respond. But what I find we struggle with a little bit in Victoria um, is that the PSP process or the structure planning process is quite overly regulated. Now that's good because it enables a particular time frame. It allows certainty for people involved in the process, but. It actually, I find, stymies innovation a little bit. So, and it's what I'm teaching the kids, to be fair. There's, you know, eight elements. We teach them about all eight. At the end of the day, they produce a structure plan and, by and large, they look very similar. Mm-hmm. And that's because of the process. And what you then find is the innovation almost then has to come at the next level, which is the developer and the planning consultant doing subdivision layouts that challenge the PSP a little bit and get a good outcome. Mm-hmm. So... So do you think your role as a development manager really helps in that, um, in that process, in dealing with developers day-to-day, yeah. teaching kids about the PSPs? Yeah, yeah. yeah totally. So um, I did a lot of work for Sean Hogan at ISPT and um, when, when I came out, I started Niche and I was doing work for Sean, it was really interesting to be able to empathise and understand where he was coming from. Mm. So often they'll, you know... A development manager is essentially saying that time is money. So it's really frustrating to be dealing with planners that are trying their best... I guess they're trying their best to try and hit lots of deadlines or lots of regulatory requirements. Um, But in the process, you can end up with a really long, protracted process. Mm -hmm. And for a development manager, they might have taken over a parcel of land that was, um, you know, it was bought, it was in the urban growth zone... Uh, They've held it for X amount of years, so they're accruing interest. And for them, they're trying to, um, I guess, get a bit of return on money, but they're trying to get a really good outcome and work together with with the planners. And we often find ourselves sort of throwing up rules and regulations over the place. So Mm -hmm. it's good to be a consultant and know that and and tease that out a bit. Uh, Nicola, there's a lot of focus on the inner city, Mm -hmm. the central city, and there's a lot of work done on the greenfields what about the older traditional suburbs, the sort of 60s and 70s and 80s suburbs? Mm. Do we need to, or the, you know, we could call it the base of the pyramid, how can we look at introducing more innovation into housing in those areas? In the more inner areas? No, sort of in the 10, 10 to 20k, middle, 10 to 25 uh, Middle ring, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's the challenge that we're currently playing with 
in Victoria. So we've all figured out how to do it in the greenfields because it's a bit of a blank canvas. Um, but now that we're looking at the kind of middle ring and regional areas, realistically, the way that I can see it happening is you can use those same skills that you've learned out in the greenfields and you're using them in the middle ring to try and push a really good outcome. I think the constraints that we've got is um, the existing services. So I live in Forest Hill, which is in South Yarra. It's a tiny little square next to a train station and we have sort of 20-odd, 30-odd storey apartments in that area. Was that originally planned to have that density? No. So how does infrastructure cater for that density? I've had a talk to engineers and they've said to me, you know, it's fine, usually we put in pipes in the roads that are a particular width that will accommodate that. So maybe it's not the actual um, physical infrastructure from a servicing point of view, but maybe we need to start having a think about provision of things like open space and community facilities. Those things are in place right now for the original planned communities. Mm -hmm. But now in places like Stonington, for example, you're finding there's an under-provision of open space and they're then having to go through and acquire land parcels and things like that to respond. So I think as planners we need to be a little bit ahead of the game when we're thinking of middle ring and how we plan innovative. I things. suppose I was, I was thinking about the diverse society we live in and yeah. the diverse housing needs we have, but we seem to have only a couple of different housing types. Mm, true. We have apartments in the inner city, we have some low-rise, and then we have detached. Yep. Oh, so I think there's constantly new housing types that are coming up. The um, micro-housing um, conversation that's going on over in WA and it's happening here as well and, and it's sort of convertible type housing. Mm-hmm. So it's maybe, if you think about, like micro-housing is essentially an, an apartment type house on a small little lot or you could have an apartment type that's built to be a large one bedroom with a galley kitchen and a dining room, living room, and then one of the walls inside is movable, you create a door and then you have two bedrooms. So I think we're we're starting to innovate. Is that the small housing movement? Yeah, same thing. thing. Nicola, authenticity is widely valued, but how do you create that in your communities? And uh, isn't an outer suburb in one city almost indistinguishable (laughs) from another? Sorry, I don't mean to be too harsh. No, no, no. But there's a generic sort of... hmm? There definitely is. There definitely is. I think... um, I was having a think about this this morning, um, which developers I've um, seen innovate and do things a bit differently. And I think this is maybe another thing I learned from being a development manager. If a company's listed versus unlisted, it it does change what they can and can't do. So Can you tease that out? Um, well, essentially, when I worked at PEEP, so we were a listed company, you're doing a lot of reporting, you're chasing particular sales of lots by particular dates, so by the end of the financial year. So then you don't have that space maybe to be as innovative and, and get a good outcome. Whereas if you look at someone maybe like a Villawood, they're then trying to get a really good outcome by, um, you know, they're not dictated by the end of June 30. Yeah. So perhaps, and I think I was thinking about the Villawood example, if you think of Trillium and Point Cook and the like, they have sort of um, their body corporate type buildings and what they're doing there is they're trying to create a different um, a different suburb that's got a heart that they put in place at the start 
that someone then, if you're looking at that estate versus the one next door, you might be more likely to buy into that estate. Mm. So it is helping them with sales. And you're also removing that um, responsibility for council to have to worry about those sorts of Yeah, very true. But then you would hope that that's creating that innovation as well. Mm, Definitely. But I think the other thing as well that we maybe don't think about, and it comes back to that regulation, is we have... You know, teaching the kids about rule of thumb. So, you know, X amount of dwellings means a particular kickabout area or a community hall or whatever. Um, if you talk to some of the guys like Geographia or some of the um, economic analysts, they'll tell you that if you look in the northern suburbs versus, say, the southeast suburbs, the type of people living in those areas differ. And so the type of facilities that they need differ and therefore those sort of rule of thumbs might not necessarily work. So I think we need to use less of the rule of thumb and more understanding the market and the demographics of the people that are moving into an area. But don't we need more flexibility? Because what's here, mm. what's here now will be different in 10 years. Yeah, very Which will much. be different in 20 years. Yeah, fair? Yeah, very much so. When I worked in local government in Mandra, which was a, a WA sort of kind of like Ballarat, I guess, um, we were looking at the existing grid and it was quite a big grid, and, and I was working with an urban designer, strategic planner, who at the time was thinking about where could laneways go? Could we enforce laneways? Because then we could convert those larger lots into smaller houses and let people live in the centre of town without having to put apartments in. So I think a lot of that ability to convert comes from, as consultant planners, I was doing amazing sort of urban design layouts that then has the ability to convert over time. Mm. Do you think planners are too conservative? Um, planning and the development world, too conservative? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think sometimes, so if you look at maybe regula- regulators, mm. to an extent they sort of, I feel, they have to be conservative. They're mm. working to a particular scheme, they've got particular requirements. But when you say they have to be, why do they have to be? Because there's costs associated with regulation. Oh, and, very much so. And, and, and it uh, kills innovation. So mm. um, regulators want to regulate. Yeah. That's fair, that's what they do. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know, like, I find the um, innovation tends to come more from maybe uh, the policy makers, so, you know, strategic planners, whether they're in local or state government. You know, I sat on the SPPF advisory committee, so we were reviewing the state planning policy framework in Victoria, and that was amazing. We dealt with some really interesting state government planners who were really pushing the envelope. And the benefit of that is because they were pushing the envelope at the state policy level, that was then filtering down into the local policy level into those regulators and giving them the ability, I guess, to think a bit more innovatively. Mm. Think outside the box. Yeah, Mm. yeah. Uh, What are some of the constraints to smart, innovative development and how do we minimise the threats to that? Um, I guess guess smart, innovative development can still happen. Mm. Um, I've... If you have a think about, there's an estate, I think it's Trillium up north, they have, they've put in place um, those car electric chargers. Mm-hmm. Not, I don't know how, well, I don't know anyone that's driving an electric car right now, but I'm sure there's a few, but there's not a lot. But they have decided that this would be something that could in the future be needed, and so therefore they're going to put it in place. There was obviously a good local government that they could work together with that did think outside the box. So I guess for me, if everything is... Um, is regulated and controlled and it's all based on particular standards, then that's where you have the difficulty. I think we need to move outside that a bit and, 
you know, in Victoria, if you can respond to an objective rather than a standard, that's good. So it's a principle-based thing. It's more that um, rather than being very prescriptive, it's more sort of performance-based. I think if we can sort of move into that space a bit more, that helps with innovation. Mm. So we seem to be moving towards a world of collaborative consumption, um, which represents a greater freeing up of capacity. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so that I guess we were sort of saying it's a bit like Airbnb and Uber and all those kind of examples. And I think in planning, like Airbnb. So I've Mm. stayed in Airbnbs all across the world. Great, they're amazing, you get to meet the locals. Um, I can probably guarantee that the ones I've stayed in in Australia haven't been approved by planners. Mm. It's usually some dodgy little backyard thing that's popped up Mm. and, and you know, you're staying there. But... Short of the environmental health requirements that might be associated with a kitchen in that space, or potentially the car parking, mm-hmm. is it really that concerning? I think. Well, how different is it, Nicola, to having my exactly. relatives come and stay? Exactly. So a lot of these things are as of right. It's been a big push. Yep. And a lot of the regulatory efforts been made by the established hotels. Yep. Getting councils to enforce regulations. So, well, the planning world looks after these things. Well. If you think, so historically, like when I first came out of uni, we were taught, you know, there's 2.7 people that live in every house and therefore every house has, you know, one and a half cars or whatever all those different, again, rules of thumb were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we were approving granny flats or um, home-based business or any of those things, the biggest issue was always to do with the number of cars that were um, going to be parking and where were they going to be parking and congestion and the like. Mm-hmm. But these days, our family types are so different. So you can have... You know, two families living in the one house, which is very prevalent in our northern suburbs. You can have um, an elderly um, family member living with a young couple in an apartment. You know, like it's so different. And so I think, um, I think surely we should just be looking to the market to see how that's changing. And then I, I find that planning tries to regulate just too much in that space. Is it trying to catch up all the time? Yeah, it's not very proactive. It's very reactive. But I mean, if that's you, the nature of the beast, though. Well, that's it? it. If you think about this example with the electric cars, that's quite proactive. But mm-hmm. that's come from a developer, not from a from a local government. So, in local government, what can we do? Well, I guess all we can try and do is, yeah, try and respond more through objectives and performance measures. And I suppose on that point as well, you would have read in the paper the other day about that recent VCAT case of the the Nightingale, I think it is, um, where in Brunswick, where they've actually refused the case on the basis of no car parking. So it's interesting yeah. to see someone doing, trying to do something innovative yeah. um, and not provide any car parking for the apartment building and Vika has actually refused it on that, on that basis, yeah. ma- making the point that um, there's nothing more convenient than the car, for example. Yeah. So, you know, that's yeah. probably an example of what we were just talking about. Well, you look at Yarra. Um, so our office was based in Yarra and now it's in Port Melbourne. And when we were in Yarra, we um, did a lot of work for the little local community. We do a lot of planning and... Um, there was an old guy down the road, he had a um, couple of cars in a a building and he wanted to convert that into two apartments for his daughters. And Yara were very upfront in saying, look, that was approved with the assumption that there was a a car bay inside the building. And so we're happy to allow that to go to two apartments, but we aren't going to give you any um, on-street permits because you're just down the road from Smith Street and there's a tram. And I think in those circumstances, that's okay. Yeah, definitely. That's fine. Definitely. Yeah. Um, Nicola, we, we all work in a professional ecosystem. Yeah, can you describe yours and 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 how it's evolved over the years? Yeah, sure, sure. So, um, 
my favourite thing about being a planner is talking to people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, so when I when I was young, I used to my very first job was working for um, a Cardno type company in um, in Perth, and the woman that was there, Jenny Smithson, was the um, national. Planning Institute counsellor, and she got me involved, I would say roped in to attending a conference in Darwin. I met all these amazing planners. I got really inspired by going to the conference. And since 19, and I'm now 36, I have been <laughs> I have been totally involved in the Planning Institute. And it's really strange because people say to me these days, why are you still doing it? Like, what's the driver? But for me, it's all about, I guess it's giving back mm. as well, but it's all about the... Um, types of people that I've been able to meet through the planning institute, like Jess, now like Peter. <laughs> um, but for me, that's that's a big part of my ecosystem. Mm. But the other thing as well that I'm doing more these days is social media. And I spoke at a FIFA conference last year or the year before on the role of Twitter in small business. And it's amazing. So, you know, you see Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, they're probably the ones that most people are across. Facebook is really good if you're a business and you're selling something. So you're selling, I don't know, pillowcases. Facebook's great because people can see the product that they're getting. As a small business, Twitter is amazing because all of the local governments, the planning minister, professional organisations, UDIA, PA, etc., they're all on Twitter. And actually, most of the um, ministerial announcements, the the PR announcements of of the last couple of years have all come out on Twitter just Mm -hmm. before that minister stood up to um, make an announcement. So I found that really interesting to keep my knowledge up, Um, but, you know, it's a great way to to find out about new things. So you're a big big user of social media? (laughs) Yeah, I am. I'm constantly keeping an eye out what the young guns are up to, so... I don't even know how to use Twitter, so you're... (laughs) <laughs> well, the other day, so it was 11.30 at night, I couldn't get to sleep, which is really concerning, um, and I just jumped onto Twitter, and there's a couple of friends of mine who were planners up in Queensland, um, and they had, I don't know, some sort of, I think it was called the Keeble Lecture or something, and it was a lecture where Stephen Yarwood, who's this amazing um, speaker, was talking about new innovative things that were coming out. Is he the Lord Mayor of Adelaide? Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, he is great. And so he was talking about, um, you know, innovative uh, building materials and he was talking about glass, different types of glass. And I thought, oh, yeah, whatever. And he'd provided a link in his tweet. So I then clicked on that link. That then took me to some examples of things that are happening in, um, you know, interface between your business space and your home space, really, mm-hmm. and how different glass products integrated into the house on the front of your fridge, on your mirror so you can be putting your makeup on and read emails that are popping up. Like, it was just amazing. Oh, amazing. But there you go. That's something that Two you Two beds, can... one stone. Yeah, yeah. So you, you're a believer in the future is your friend? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think I'm quite impressed. Um, I was talking to my parents the other day and there, this question came up, who are you inspired by um, in this book that I was reading? And I said to my mum, pretty much by her and dad, like, they, they're old school. They're 70-odds, or dad is. Um, and they're constantly keeping an eye out for what's changing. Um, I help, I let my mum do a bit of my books occasionally. She'll laugh by the word let. But, you know, it's, it's keeping people on the front foot and, and keeping thinking about what's going on. So Jess should learn about Twitter. But, you know, <laughs> that, that sort of space. There's a thing called Periscope that's just come out recently and I had no idea what it was, but it's sort of like a, 
online video like Snapchat that people are using to enable people to look into their world. So a lot of developers and planners around the world are using these video spaces to then show graphics of things that are happening. Just going to the future, how long do you think it is until machines will start making planning decisions? <laughs> I, we were talking about this and I feel, and it might be an old school decision, but right now I feel that because I'm a planner, because I like helping people and I like engaging with someone, a lot of that you get from the eye-to-eye contact and, and the conversation. So a client comes to me and wants to develop a bit of land you know, often they'll ask me for an engagement letter before they've met me. I'll never do that. I'll always want to meet them first because I want to make sure I know who they are and what they want and I want them to know that I'm good at what I do. Mm-hmm. So for me, a computer can't do that. I Definitely a computer can figure out how tall something is, how far it can be set back, you know, what percentage of the land should go to resi versus industrial. You know, there's definitely parts of our job that, that computers will and can do. Um, but I'm hopeful that there's still an element of people that will always stay in planning. Mm. Um, and what about mentoring? You're, ah. a big, you're a big fan of mentoring. Um, I am. I'd say in a number of ways you're one of my mentors <laughs> that I ask silly questions of constantly. That's fine. I return the favour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. So um, it's quite funny. There's a lot about women in planning and, you know, I'm not one to really go to the women in planning events because... I I guess I've been quite lucky in that I've always had quite strong mentors and amazingly they probably have always been women but I've had some great male bosses as well. But in my team there's two boys and the rest are girls and that's just strange. But I hope I'm a mentor to all of them and so I try and get them involved in institute stuff and, and I guess that's a little why I do the lecturing. And yeah, you're right. So I was actively involved in Young Planners. I was one of the first ones there at the start and helped create it and now feel really proud when I see young planners popping up. Nicola, you've done a lot. What have you not done that you want to do though? (laughs) (laughs) Say in the next five years. Next five years. Um, So I guess for me, I guess for me the business is in Melbourne and I've worked really hard to build niche up in Melbourne. And I've got little fingers across in all the pies in WA as well. And I think it would be really positive to... I've got an office over there and I've got an office in Hobart. I think it would be good to build those a little bit more. Um, I, I know a lot. Of, uh, you can imagine if you've worked in a state for 10-odd years, you know a lot about the place, you know the people, and I'd like to still maintain those connections. So I guess, for me, I'd like to build niche up a bit expand it into WA a bit more and probably um, help some of my young planners really step up. Well, thank you, Nicola. This is, uh, thank you for a very informative interview and I hope our uh, listeners enjoy the dynamic Nicola Smith. Please uh, look at our website, www.planningexchange.org for more information about the uh, series. And also, we've also recently um, received our first sponsorship from VPRs, so we're very grateful to VPR for providing us funds. I hope you've enjoyed this interview. Thank you, Nicola. Thank you, Jess. Thanks. Thank you. i